Thank you, worship team. Heavenly Father, we surrender this time to you. Father God, it's my prayer that we would hear your voice today. That as I speak, that it would be your word, Father, that comes forward and that we would receive your word with meekness and graft it into our hearts. Father, you said that you would once again shake the heavens and the earth. And what we see throughout history with your people, we see continues today. We wax and we wane. There's an ebb and there's a flow and there's, there's a tension and then there's complacency. And Father, it's my prayer that we would hear and adhere to your voice and to your word that you would strengthen us to set aside the distractions of this life and that we, we would be the people you have called us to be, children of the Most High God, and that we would live how you have called us in accordance with your word and that people would see it not because of us but because of you that we would reflect your light and your love and they would know there's something different not because of us but because of whose we are we belong to you father let your light shine in and through us may we shake off our complacency and draw near to you in messiah yeshua amen so we're wrapping up our study in Nehemiah. We'll be in chapter 13 today. And chronologically, if you didn't know, Nehemiah is the last book written in the Tanakh. And so it is apropos that we are finishing up the week before Hanukkah, which of course is a miracle which, which is commemorated. It's a miracle that occurred during the 400 years between the Tanakh and the Brit Hadasha, the Old and New Testaments, if you will. So after the building of the wall and the reading of God's word, some beautiful ceremonies that we read about, Nehemiah left Jerusalem for a while. And it's not specified how long. It is speculated that it was between one and three years, maybe a little bit more, but that's pure speculation. What we do know is it was long enough for the people to start straying from Torah again, wandering away from the commandments of God and the directions of Nehemiah. When Nehemiah returns in this chapter, we see four major sins of the people. intermarrying with people from whom they were to be separate. The commands pertaining to intermarriage were never about skin or hair color or facial features. It was always about their beliefs, their worship practices, and how they dealt with Israel throughout history. God's children had proven time and again they could adopt, they would adopt, the worship practices of other nations. And they would try to incorporate them into worshiping Adonai, which never worked out well for them. That coexist bumper sticker that we see mostly on Toyota Priuses, 
Yeah, that, that was not on the back of the donkey that Messiah rode into Jerusalem, regardless of what the message version says. Just kidding. So toward the end of the, the 13th chapter, we see what Nehemiah does to some of the men who married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. He opens up a can of whoop kamor. Kamor is the Hebrew word for donkey, just in case. So, but he beat them. He beats these guys. He pulls their beards out and he curses them. And of course, by cursing them, that doesn't mean he swore at them and used profanity. No, he, this is much worse. He spoke a curse upon them in the name of Adonai. In addition to intermarrying, Israel had also forsaken the temple, abandoned the tithe, and profaned the Sabbath. Take a look at Nehemiah chapter 13, starting at verse 4. Nehemiah 13, 4 and 5. Prior to this, Eliashib the Kohen was given authority over the storerooms in the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah and provided him with a large chamber previously used to store the offerings, frankincense, and the temple vessels, and also the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, along with the offerings for the Kohanim. So the priests, Eliashib, decided to remove and clear out the temple vessels, the tithes, the incense, and offerings to make room for his buddy Tobiah, who was an Ammonite and who just happens to be an enemy of Nehemiah and tried to stop the building of the wall around Jerusalem. That's his buddy who he's making room for. In verses 6 through 11, Nehemiah is speaking. I was not in Jerusalem during all this, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. After a period of time, I requested to take leave from the king and return to Jerusalem. Then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done by preparing a chamber for Tobiah in the courts of the house of God. It greatly displeased me, so I threw all of Tobiah's household goods outside the storeroom and commanded the storerooms be cleansed. Then I restored the utensils of the house of God, the offerings, and the frankincense. I also learned that the portions of the Levites had not been provided, and that each of the Levites and singers who performed the work had gone back to his own field. So I rebuked the leaders and asked, Why has the house of God been forsaken? I assembled them and stationed them at their posts. Then all Judah brought the tithe of grain, new wine, and oil to the storehouses. I put Sheliamiah, the Kohen, Zadok, the scribe, and Padeah from the Levites in charge over the storehouses and made Haran, the son of Zakur, son of Mataneah, their assistant, because these men were considered faithful. They were responsible for distributing to their brothers." So Nehemiah quickly restores things to order. The temple is cleansed, and there is the reinstitution of the tithe. As Leviticus 27.30 says, 
All the tithe of the land, whether from the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, belongs to Adonai, for it is holy to Adonai. We read further in verses 15 through 17. In those days, I saw in Judah some people treading wine presses on the Shabbat, some bringing and loading heaps of grain on donkeys, as well as wine, grapes, figs, and various other burdens, bringing them into Jerusalem on the Shabbat day. So I warned them about selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived there were bringing fish and all kinds of merchandise and were selling it on the Yom Shabbat to the children of Judah, even in Jerusalem. So I complained to the nobles of Judah and asked them, What is this evil thing that you are doing? You are profaning Yom Shabbat. Didn't your ancestors do exactly the same thing, causing our God to bring all this evil upon us and upon this city? So now you are bringing even more wrath upon Israel by profaning Yom Shabbat. Nehemiah is reminding the people that profaning the Shabbat, which has been done throughout their history, has always brought them trouble. Exodus 20 and verse 8 says, Remember Yom Shabbat to keep it holy. You are to work six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Shabbat to Adonai your God. In verse 19, When evening darkness began to fall on the gates of Jerusalem before Yom Shabbat, I commanded the doors to be shut. I further commanded that they should not be opened until after Yom Shabbat. I appointed some of my attendants over the gates so that no burden can enter during Shabbat. Once or twice, the traders and those selling all kinds of merchandise camped outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said to them, Why are you camping next to the wall? If you do so again, I'll lay hands on you. From that time, they no longer came on the Shabbat. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and to come and guard the gates in order to sanctify Yom Shabbat. Remember this also on my behalf, O my God, and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. So Nehemiah commanded the people to shut the doors and guard the gates at sunset and not open them until Shabbat ended. Guarding the gates, shutting those doors, that's not a law. That's not a command of God. But it was a necessary precaution, a boundary to help the people avoid disobeying God. There are areas in our lives where we may need to set boundaries that go beyond the commands of Scripture. There might be some people who say, well, that's unreasonable. But if it's necessary, we do it. There are boundaries over the years that Bernadette and I have set to protect our marriage. They're not in the Scripture, but they're things that we do to protect our relationship. There are things that I have done to protect my relationship with God. They're not spelled out in Scripture. And some might say, well, you're getting a little overboard with that, aren't you? No, I'm not. Maybe it is for you, but it's not for me. 
In Romans chapter 14, it talks all about that. It talks about personal convictions that people have. Read it. Check it out. Heed it. In this 13th chapter of Nehemiah, we see the importance of worshiping God how he has prescribed, not commingling our practices with the practices of others. That's why that intermarrying was such an issue. It all goes back to worshiping God. Also, we see the importance of his temple, the tithe, and Shabbat. The tithe, as we read, is holy to Adonai. We don't give God the leftovers. We, we shouldn't look at our budget and figure out if we can afford to tithe. Because what most of us learn, and we typically learn it the hard way, we learn that we can't afford not to tithe. It's one of the, maybe the only area that I'm aware of in Scripture where God says, test me in this. We can't afford not to tithe. Honoring the Sabbath. God set the example from Genesis. He completed the work of creation in six days, and on the seventh, he ceased from his work. He showed us how we are to live. And it's another one of those things that many of us learn the hard way. We strive and we push and we grind because we think we're doing good. We think we're getting ahead in life. And at some point we learn we need to rest. We need to cease from our labor, come apart and separate ourselves. And there are times when it feels like it's an inconvenience because I could sure get a lot of work done today. I could sure get a whole lot of my shopping done today. But we're supposed to come apart. We're supposed to cease and rest from our work. And I don't believe that we should cause others to work either. Think about this. God even commanded a Sabbath for dirt. Every seventh year, the fields were to be rested. And what do more modern farmers learn from that? Well, that's why they rotate their crops. They're letting them rest. They let that field rest. And think about this as well. What was man made from? The dust of the earth. Amen? It's interesting also, um, Stephen Covey's book, Motivational book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. One of the habits he lists in that book is sharpening the saw. And he explains how highly effective people need a break from their work. They need to sharpen their mind, their body, and their spirit. And it's also interesting when he goes through his, his number of habits that that is the seventh habit. Not a coincidence, I don't think. God made the Sabbath for us. Yeshua said that. That the Sabbath was that the Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. Yeshua saying that, some people will take that out of context to mean that that means I can do whatever I want on it. God made it for me, so I can do whatever I want. You're right, you can, as long as it's according with Scripture. Wear it out, cowboy. 
It doesn't mean we can do whatever we want. It's made for us. It's a commandment and a gift. Some of you may have seen this interview. I, I actually, I feel bad for the guy that was being interviewed. as a young pastor from Tennessee, and uh, Bernadette and I watched this together a while back. And the interview asks, asks him why many Christians don't observe the Sabbath. Because it is one of the commandments of God. It's one of the Ten Commandments. So why is it not observed? And after filibustering for a little while, this pastor answered, we must obey all nine of the Ten Commandments. And the interviewer said, could you repeat that, please? And he says, all nine of the Ten Commandments are still in effect. Huh? That would be like me saying, I love both of my three children. I mean, it's a nonsensical statement. Anyway, one thing that is not in Scripture regarding the Sabbath is that it is the day of worship. There's no one specific day set aside for that. And I believe that's because we are to honor and worship God every day. We worship him in spirit and in truth. And our lives, as Paul said, are to be a living sacrifice to God, which is our spiritual service of worship daily. We see in the scriptures repeatedly God's children ignoring, dishonoring, profaning the Sabbath. And that trend continues with his children in modern times. See, his word hasn't changed. And his, ha- his Sabbath hasn't changed. God numbered the days and he gave one a name. The seventh day, Shabbat, the Sabbath. And I don't see in scripture where the Sabbath was changed from the seventh day to the first day of the week. Where we see in the epistles when it says, They were gathered together on the first day of the week, as was their practice, and that's in a few different places. As I understand it, this was nothing new to the people. This wasn't something that had just come along. See, they gathered together for the purpose of giving the tithe. The first day was a work day. It was their first day of work. They were paid their wages daily. And on the first day of the week, they gathered together. It was their practice to gather together to give the tithe, the first fruits. Our culture and our society make it much more difficult to honor the Sabbath. Many jobs call for people to work on the Sabbath. It's challenging. Many companies, most companies are open. So it's easy to conduct business on the Sabbath and so on. I like Bernadette, when she went to Israel last year, she texted me a picture from one of the, one of the businesses there and they have a sign posted and they're not the only one. And the sign says 24-6. 24 hours a day, six days a week. Make it simple, okay? You don't even have the option. That was on an ATM. Even the ATM operates 24-6. Make life simpler for sure. The Sunday Sabbath, as I, as I have studied, was instituted by Pope Sylvester in the 4th century. 
Um, the persecution of the Jews was on the rise in Rome. Constantine had uh, declared that he and his army were Christian. Now, when I say that he had declared his army and he were Christian, it's kind of like that scene in The Office when Michael Scott's got a lot of financial problems, and so he goes to Creed, who is not a giver of sage wisdom, but he goes to this guy Creed, and and, and Creed tells him, you know what you need to do? You need to declare bankruptcy, because that's life's do-over. And so Michael walks out into the office, and he yells, I declare bankruptcy! And then he walks back to his office, and Oscar walks in and tells him, Michael, you know just saying the word bankruptcy doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't do anything. And Michael says, no, 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 I didn't just say it. I declared it. It's kind of a similar comparison here because Constantine declared himself and his army were Christian with zero evidence of change, no recorded repentance, not due to any actual personal relationship with God through Messiah, but because he liked some of what the Christians did. So, in order to avoid being persecuted along with the Jews and to earn the favor of the Roman government, who were big into sun worship, the Pope declared, under the authority of the church, Sunday was the new Sabbath. Just for the record, the church, Catholic or otherwise, does not wield the authority to overrule God's word, in case anyone was confused about that. And even today, we still see that kind of compromise with religious leaders and politicians. Still happens. So where we read, Nehemiah cleanses the temple. I believe we can and we should make a connection of Yeshua cleansing the temple. In Mark 11, Luke 19, Matthew 21, and in John chapter 2. Now, quick side note. Some people have speculated that perhaps Yeshua did this twice because it's recorded much earlier in John's gospel than, than the other three. It's actually more likely that this happened only once, but it's where it is in John's gospel because when John's writings were assembled, they were kept in the order in which they were received. It was not collected and assembled chronologically. It was kept and put together in the order it was received and assembled that way. At any rate, we'll see in John chapter 2, starting at verse 12. After this, Yeshua went down to Capernaum with his mother, brothers, and disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Jewish feast of Passover was near, so Yeshua went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found the merchants selling oxen, sheep, and doves, also the money changers sitting there. Then he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple, both the sheep and oxen. He dumped out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those selling doves, he said, get these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. There are definitely parallels between what Nehemiah did, cleansing the temple, and what Messiah has done. They both had a zeal for God's house, which consumed them. They both displayed righteous indignation. 
And what is the temple today? We are, correct? We are the temple of God. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 7, Don't you know that you are God's temple, that the Ruach Elohim dwells among you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Some theologians like to debate over the word you in this letter because the pronoun that's used in Greek is plural. So some would argue that means individually we are not God's temple. It's only when multiple members are gathered. I disagree with that premise. See, I believe it applies singular and plural. Quite simply, if I write a letter to Sabbath Peace Fellowship and I say that I pray God blesses you and the work of your hands, the you that I am writing to is the you, the corporate gathering, but it's also directed to each individual, isn't it? It's really not that difficult, is it? So, knowing that we are the present-day temple of God, and His Spirit dwells within us, shouldn't we have a zeal for our Father's house that consumes us? We see the righteous indignation of Nehemiah and Yeshua. They had this zeal for the proper use of their Father's house. And is that not a reflection of the intensity and intentionality that we should have for what goes on in his temple? What do we put in the temple? What goes on in the temple? What do we allow into the temple? Does does the temple reflect God's glory? Is the temple operating in accordance with God's word? Scripture says the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Remember, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, taking captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. We want to get angry and indignant about things that we see, about sin that we see, about wrong behaviors, wrong attitudes. We want to get mad about it. Well, we should, with violent intent, remove those things from our lives. That which does not belong in God's temple, we should remove it. The greatest truth regarding cleansing the temple is this. Yeshua is still doing it today. Hallelujah. When we surrender to him, he will cleanse the temple. It's his work. Only in him will we be presented clean before the Father. Once we have repented, turned back to God, Teshuvah, through the sacrificial sin offering of Yeshua HaMashiach and receive God's grace by faith. See, salvation is only by grace through faith in Messiah Jesus. 
When we submit to his lordship, he cleanses the temple. And our job from there is maintenance and upkeep. And ensuring that God is glorified in his temple. And the Ruach Elohim, the spirit of God, will reveal to us when it's falling into disrepair. When we're allowing things in that shouldn't be there. Or when we're behaving in a way that should not be done in the temple. The Holy Spirit convicts, counsels, and comforts us. When that conviction comes, it leads us to repentance. And our repentance then leads us to subsequent obedience of God's word. And our obedience is our response to God's amazing grace and his steadfast love. It's not how we get him to love us. And it's not how we earn salvation because that can't be done. He loved us first. He loved us enough to have his son, the Messiah, die for us while we were still sinners. Following his word, the desire to obey God, the Torah, the prophets, the writings, the gospels, the epistles, and revelation. It pours out of us, that desire pours from us in response to his great love for us. It is to say, you are my Lord to the death. Speak and I will follow. He has spoken. He has given us his word. May we seek to follow it. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you that it is a light to our path. It is a lamp to our feet. You show us the way. And not only do you show us the way, you empower us. You fill us with your spirit that we can walk in the way. Thank you so much. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for loving us to the grave and back. We are grateful for Messiah, Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. You are our King. You are our God. We humbly surrender ourselves to you and seek, Father, that you would be glorified in your temple. May the zeal for your house consume us in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. On the night that Messiah was betrayed, he said the blessing over the bread, and then he took it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me.
We remember as we, as we take and we remember Messiah in this, the Apostle Paul told us to examine ourselves when we do this. Examine ourselves that we take in the right manner. The blessing over the bread. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Hamotze Lechem Min Haaretz Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Amen. In the same way, Messiah took the cup, and after blessing it, he said, Take and drink. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. We do this in remembrance of you, Messiah. Amen. Connor, would you close with prayer and pray over the food? Yes. Thank you.